You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Phineas and Joanna Sprague are the co-founders of Portland Yacht Services. Thanks for coming in today. I think you like to be called Finn. Is is that right? Okay. Nice to have you. Thank you very much. I'm really intrigued by all the work that you have put into Portland's waterfront. And this is something that you've been doing for many years. You've been married for 42 years. Did we decide that was how long ago? Yep. Long time. And you've always been joined by the water. Yes. In fact, when we first came back from sailing... It was hard to be more than 72 feet apart. <laughs> because you were used to being on a, 72 on a feet apart, right? That was as far apart as we got. For many years. You met in Florida, mm-hmm. where you were working as a nurse, Joanna. Correct. That's correct. And Finn, you were sailing around the world. I was uh, had the idea that we could sail around the world in 18 months, and it didn't work out that way. But we, we did meet in Florida. And you also got married on board your vessel on Mariah in Bali in Bali and most of his all of your family was there and just my parents and it was Christmas Christmas day that's very romantic it's romantic Um, it was part of what we sort of said come visit us at Christmas time it wasn't easy to find a minister um, we weren't sure he was going to show up, but he did. So we then brought out, um, new, you know, did we have a ring? Yes, we did have a ring. Right. Yeah. So we, we did get married, but it was a surprise to everybody. Joanna, your background was in, you said, outboarding? Well, my parents had a little marina and campgrounds in Canada, and I grew up on the water. I delivered papers in an outboard, and then it shut down in the, in the winter, and we would go to Florida. Then they'd come back up and open it up. So I grew up um, working in a little store. OMC dealer. Yeah. My dad gave us all of his old manuals and uh, he even brought a motor to us one time on Mariah, a folding motor, which was one of the first ones ever, ever, ever. But, um, and then I went to nursing school. So I had some nursing background getting on the boat. So, I guess what I wonder is, weren't you taking kind of a, an enormous leap of faith by getting on that boat that first mm-hmm. time 42 years ago with this man that you had just met? You're right, because um, the boat was already in Panama at the time, and Finn called and um, asked if I would help him get the boat across the Pacific. And I said, sure. <laughs> got off the phone. Where are the Marques? <laughs> got off the phone. Had to look it up in a map, because... Um, 
I had no idea where the Marquesas were, and that's near Tahiti, but I never got off. So four years later, we sailed back into Portland. Right. So do you think that actually strengthened your marriage, the fact sure. that you spent sure. all of that time together in a pretty small area? Well, we've had area. our back, each other's backs, and in most difficult circumstances. Absolutely. Right. You know, there's, there's no question that, um, as I said, we weren't ready to be apart when we came back sailing around the world. And that was the hardest part for me to go off right. every day and go to a job and not see him for eight hours. It was very different than yeah. our life together for the first four or five years was we were always together. And we always, being on a boat, you also know, you know who's in charge. And in a house, it's a little different. <laughs> right. We've had, a, we've had an agreement since we were married. And that is that she did all the little decisions and I did all the big ones. And after 42 years, there's been really been no big decisions. <laughs> and any time I thought there was a big decision, I got really big trouble for it. <laughs> so it just sounds like you're doing all the decisions now, Joanna. Mm -hmm. No, no, she I've keeps, had to really. She's the admiral. She's the admiral. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, I look at the horizon and she looks at my feet to make sure that I don't trip. Mm -hmm. So you complement each other well. Well, we've been at it a long time. We know. We know who's better at other things, so we um, let each other take over roles. But it is—it's that those first few years being married was um, we weren't apart. And it was also dangerous, you know. We, you know, we were in a situations the in the seventies mm -hmm. in in Indonesia and uh, Red Sea and uh, places that uh, no scene. We were right off Timor when that was invaded. So, you know, it was, and then we got in a cyclone and then, you know, we got some pretty bad storms and, you know. We were one of the first uh, cruising boats to go through the Suez Canal after it reopened. And it was a little frightening. There were lots of t stories of guns and, you know, yeah, boat and hooks. Right, people that didn't, you know, couldn't comprehend a yacht, even the concept of, you know, are you sailing around the world because why? <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, what are you doing? We're, we're having a hard enough time living and you have the resources to do what? Um, you know. Uh, you and know. would I do it again? No. I mean, I think the world is a lot scarier now. I wouldn't want to be at any of these places. I mean, I, you know, we get that question all the time and there's too much unrest. There's too much dislike out there. Right. So. I slept with a pistol under my pillow all the way up the Red Sea and not knowing what I would do if I had to use it. Um, you know, boats that we were with and around got machine gunned and, and uh, I think it was a young person's, you know, concept that you would... We were young. Yeah, you how, would... How old you were could you? live forever. <laughs> we were in our 20s when we yeah. were doing this, so... Yeah. We got back in 77. And what did your families think of this voyage around the world? Well, as I said, um, I'm the youngest in my family, so my mom was okay. Um, they came to visit us a few times, same with your family. I think you had always talked about sailing around the world as a kid. Well, I, w I was always um, independent. And uh, 
you know, my parents, um, I guess they'd probably be put in jail for what they let me do as a child. <laughs> um, you know, they let me go out and, and uh, I was allergic to everything that uh, was on the farm. So I would, at age six, I was out rowing a boat around in, in Cape Elizabeth offshore in the southwest breeze so that I wouldn't, so my eyes wouldn't get all clouded up with the, and uh, then I ended up up in the Allagash all by myself doing mapping for the main geological survey. I was down the coal mines in West Virginia. Um, they basically uh, uh, figured that the first pancake was the one that you always threw out, so it would be okay. <laughs> there was, you know, a bunch of us, there were six of us. So, so you mean you were the oldest child? Yeah. So you were the first pancake. Right. And then, um, but the, you know, the experience that they allowed me to do made me very independent. And I think that, you know, they trusted me, but they would never allow more than three of the kids on the boat at any one time. Just in case something bad happened. Right. And, you know, and it was dangerous, you know. It we was didn't have the communications that we have now on boats. You know, we had a ham radio. And we had a single sideband that if we, didn't got, work. if we got the skip right, we could call home. And that was one of the harder things for all of us was not having that communication. All right. um, and I think, you know, if you talk to our parents, you know, it was a big deal when we did make the phone calls. Right. So we, we tried, you know, we tried to call them when we'd get into a port so they knew where we were. Right. And there were great ham radio operators mm -hmm. in South Portland. That was a whole that different would, level. That would help us to communicate. And, you know, nowadays, you know, you can basically, with Iridium phones and all of this stuff, you have instant gratification um, uh, from anywhere in the world. Um, whereas when we were sailing, we were the last, I call it, class of boat that, that uh, used celestial navigation. Right. Right. That's so. Right. And uh, Celestial teaches you to be very, very cautious. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, there, can, and there can be many days when you don't have a good fix. And it can be quite dangerous when you're making approaches to land. So, you know, things have changed. You know, and a lot of people that don't have the maritime skills are able to get out on the water and, and go great distances now. Celestial navigation is by the stars, so right. not having a good fix is maybe you can't see the stars well. Well, you don't. You can't see the stars, and you don't. You're not able to locate your position on the nautical chart with with any accuracy. So, if you're uh, approaching the coast or something in the storm, um, what you usually do is try to make contact with a lighthouse or something that flashes 20 miles off, so if you're 20 miles off course, you can see the light and then you can readjust and go on what they say on soundings, which is a different form of navigation. But the real danger is that it is just that period when you're approaching uh, shallow water. And you also use the sun and right. the moon. You can use all. You know, planet, sun, planet, moons, mm -hmm. jet contrails, <laughs> you know, what, whatever tool that you have. Yeah. Tell me about the Portland Yacht Services. Tell me about how this came to be. Well, um, 
when when um, when I, when we got back, uh, it turned out that my grandfather Thomas's uh, company that he sold, which is a Portland company, was for sale, and. Uh, United Industrial Syndicate owned it and they had built this machine that reached out and grabbed people so it was a huge liability so they had to shut the company down and and so um, because my family had been in the energy business for years in the coal mines and my grandfather had sold it um, we were looking for something positive to do and um, the Portland company was building nuclear power plant components at the time, and it had actually built the first nu commercial nuclear power plant in New England, Yankee Row, the reactor. And uh, so my parents decided that they wanted to acquire the property and, and, and uh, build nuclear power plant components. And so because I was a geologist and had studied petrology and all of these things, it, it fit that I was working in operations. And after th Three Mile Island, the whole industry shut down in the United States. And the Portland company, the Portland engineering company went out of business. That was the name of it. And I had seen so many decisions that I didn't understand and didn't couldn't articulate reasons for. I went to school, at, uh, went back to school, went to Northern, Northeastern and got an MBA and was sort of starving to death. Um, and so the, um, somebody in the Yacht Club asked me to put a fender on a Boston Whaler in my basement. And so I did that. And uh, uh, then a person that I've known for years, Eddie Rowe, who was running the Yacht Club, doing the maintenance in the Yacht Club, uh, had a heart attack. And they said, will you take it over? And I'm going, well, you know, it's food, right? <laughs> and so I started to do that. Um, out of the house. At, at, out of our house while I was getting my MBA. And I got asked to go work for General Dynamics to, in Quincy to work to do the quality assurance for the submarine submarines uh, and went down there and decided that the, that none of these people were like Bath Ironworks and they didn't understand, they weren't doing good quality work and they would eat a young person alive. Plus, we didn't want to move. And we couldn't, we couldn't move, we didn't want to move. But we it's have a lovely spot right. where we live, where we brought up our kids yeah. and it's one of the questions is yeah. totally, I, you know, I'd stay there forever and we've right. Didn't really want to leave Maine. Right. So I so I was working on boats and and at the Yacht Club and I, somebody asked me to rebuild a boat and you know I started to we moved into an old potato barn in Cape Elizabeth and you know we're working on people's boats and came to the attention of the uh, town zoning person and they found out they said it was not appropriate to to uh, build boats in, or work on boats in a barn on a saltwater farm. And so we had to scoot into an empty building in Portland, which is the Portland company, and moved overnight out of there to, uh, and then later went back in and, and changed the zoning, but it was too late for us. So, so when we moved to 58-4, <coughs> um, we were only in a couple of the buildings. Most of them were 
leased at that point. Or, or, or abandoned. Or abandoned. And um, Portland Yacht Services came out of that. We took on right. boat lines, motor lines. We actually didn't have access to the water at that point. And within five years was the beginning of when the little choo-choo train came. All right. And Finn was the guy that brought that here and hauled it down well, Commercial you know, and Street. Her, her, her and Irv Bedford, Bedford, I know that. Ed Ashley and a whole bunch of other people were. But it had a home. Right. And um, that's when you started to get the rights across. I kept, you know, I, I kept, you know, getting d diverted by nonprofit activities. Um, you know, the schooner Bowden, I was on the board there and got that rebuilt and sent, and it got up with uh, Jim Stevens and, and. Uh, Light ship. Nugent and the and light ship, the Nantucket light ship, and Spring Point Museum, and and uh, yeah. But that's all been coming out of the '58 for Portland Yacht Services, and right. as our tenants moved out, right, Sail Maine, right, we moved into the buildings, and there's no sewer there. We had to put us. It was pumping the raw sewage overboard for years, and you couldn't lease any property there until you put the uh, a new uh, pumping station and connected all the heads. The you know the place has fallen apart around our ears. This was quite a struggle. And in um, 31 years ago, we, s we asked about doing a little boat show. And the little boat show had a dozen boat builders from Maine just stand at a table, no boats. Right. Boat builders and Nat Wilson, the sailmaker right. from Booth Bay, but and and, and uh, there's of our friends, David Nutt, and you know, Dragon Works, and, and within four years we had moved close to sixty exhibitors with boats, and we started to utilize the space, but that was just for one weekend. Um, and the boat building industry changed. Right, you know, people came to meet the boat builders, which many of these guys wouldn't step foot outside of their shop, let alone the state. <laughs> so it was really um, an opportunity for that industry to get a spotlight on. And that was another big change for us to utilize the buildings, but the boatyard continued to grow. Right, and we got into a situation where we had to move the boats all outside <coughs> in order to invite our competitors in to uh, to a boat show, <laughs> so it was. Um, it grew. You know, it yeah, grew. it grew and grew and grew until at one point, I think we had a 240, probably 240 exhibitors, and every single niche and cranny was filled with a boat. So and and um, outside and inside, and right? On docks, we had right. boats on docks in March. Right. Unusual, not very often, but. And then we also. Um, but the, you know, the thing is that Joanna would run. She would do all the work to set the boat show up all year long. Put everything out, get everything organized, get get the, the get the layout of the place going until like a week before the boat show, and everybody else was working on boats. And then suddenly it was like a good, the the starting gun would go off. We'd drop all of our tools. We'd move all the boats outside. We'd throw a party for three days, which was with our friends in the boating industry. And then everything would go back into the building, and we'd go work on boats again. So it was almost a month that we would spend not working, you know, with the whole organization. And then, 
and we worked diligently with the neighborhood because that neighborhood um, you know isn't used to the end and tons of people that would come from away and we had to work and we were imposing on them mm -hmm. right and so we had to be really careful you know and it was hard because you get people that are you know really focused on coming to the boat show and they don't really care where they park and they don't really care that they've gone up onto the grass and somebody's lawn you know it's and it's march and it's march so it's mud season so you know it's um and it, then, it's then a then difficult we, thing we to booked on to this the beginning of the boat show we put the flower show and we did that for 17 years. That was Joanna's love. You know, I, well, I will work in a garden when I can't stand up in a boat. <laughs> it was a whole different crowd of people, too. You know, boats, <coughs> yeah, they're artists. They're rough around the edges. The, the, the green industry is a little different, but it was um, something we worked at, and I think it was something that the Junior League had come to us, but they wanted the buildings for a month. We couldn't shut down our business for a month. We could shut it down for a week. And especially if we had two shows back to back, that worked. Right. So we did that for a long time. And uh, my Actually, guys all became yeah. carnies. Carnies. We call ourselves carnies for two weeks. <laughs> and uh, But it was, you know, it, you didn't do it enough, so you became jaded. And you also were because it's been going on for 30 more years, the people that come into the show as exhibitors have become close friends. And, um, and we've seen a whole new generation. Their children are taking over their businesses or their children are doing other things in the marine industry, just like our kids. I mean, it's been a really um, a piece that we work at also is just education. We're finding that the boat building industry needs to keep promoting themselves. You know, you're going to lose the art of building with wood. Um, and we work hard at the whole idea of education, where to get those kids. You know, we work hard at, um, with PASS here in Portland, trying to find kids that... Yeah, we help start the Marine Systems Program mm -hmm. at at paths and and um, you know we find that uh, the real issue is is uh, you take you have to start with a, a small boat and then basically get have the opportunity to look at the marine industry as a possible career and you know people don't remember that World War II was carnage and Maine supplied a lot of merchant marine that never came back. And the uh, mothers would tell their kids, I don't want you to go out in a boat with your uncle. I want you to go work in a mill. So many of the towns, like around Maine, uh, basically, if you go s look at them, it, the anchorages are full of boats from away, and the kids are throwing rocks in the water because they really know that they have an attachment to it and yet they don't know how to get out onto it. And so, you know, it's been one of the things that we've been trying to do is to reconnect the, the, the young people in Maine with, you know, a place that you don't have to mow. And that's where Sail Maine came in yeah, and started that very early on. Right. And had worked with them and for years. Years, and, and uh, you know, I... Because the kids from the hill would come down 
and throw stuff. rocks through the windows at and the building. And we'd say, okay, let's, we got to figure out what to do with these kids. You know, they're, um, they're bored. You know, they, they want to be on the water. They don't know how until right. we started little, tiny little boat building projects. And We work with the University of Southern Maine, and we work with the City of Portland, the Parks and Rec, and, and uh, uh, you know, yeah. a whole bunch of great people to... Uh, so now to we have worldwide sailors, right. you know, nationally known sailors. We've got some of the finest sailors in the world coming out of Portland, Maine, and that's basically because we changed the model a little bit. Um, all of the high schools sailed together. So when I was a, a child, um, I would sail and there'd be one other person in the whole group that would challenge you. And now there's probably six or eight or ten high schools that are all supplying excellent sailors and they all challenge themselves. So they end up being, you know, uh, world-class sailors because, and that's the model that's really different. You know, my high school, Tabor, uh, has always attracted great sailors from, say, Bermuda and other places in the world uh, to sail, but even still there's only two or three people that, that are really good and they don't have the opportunity to tune themselves up, whereas this program is really tuning the kids up to be excellent, excellent sailors. And some of the kids go on to Maine Maritime. Like Maine Maritime and, and, and Landing Boat School. And huge support, funneling them, getting them kids right. into that school. And Universities good jobs of Maine for the, in the uh, marine sciences. And so the you know, you can't sort of take someone who's 18 and suddenly think that they're going to have boat sense. And, you know, they're, they're all thumbs, and, and it takes a long time to get that original boat sense. So it really, in my view, has to start in 8 to 14, if not sooner, mm -hmm. in a very small, tippy boat. I hope that people who have been listening will be intrigued enough to go down and um, take a look at the work that you've done um, down at Portland Yacht Services. I've been speaking with Phineas and Joanna Sprague, who are the co-founders of Portland Yacht Services. You've done a lot of good work for our city, so I really appreciate it, and for the state of Maine. Thank you, and thank you for coming in today. Thank you. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.